Hello, and welcome to the Exam Prep Podcast. I'm Kevin Yan, one of the neurology residents at the Yale School of Medicine, and today I have a very special guest with me. We have yet another prodigal son returning. I have Dr. Aaron Bauer, who is now a neuroimmunology fellow. Longtime listeners will recognize him as the voice of many excellent podcasts on a wide variety of topics. Today, he has agreed to come back and talk about something more in his wheelhouse. How are you doing, Aaron? And good to have you back. Oh, I'm doing well, Kevin. Thank you for asking, and it's a pleasure to be back. I currently am preparing for the boards and I'm listening to a lot of old podcasts and unfortunately have to listen to my voice, which is never a favorite. (laughs) So today, Aaron has kindly offered his time to come back and talk about neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorders and myelin oligodendrocyte glycoprotein associated disease. This is a subset of the wider variety of inflammatory optic neuropathies. I will refer our listeners back to the prior episodes on monocular vision loss. One was hosted by Aaron and the other was hosted by myself with our neuro-ophthalmologist, Dr. Fizio, for an overview of optic neuropathies in general and the broad differential diagnoses. But today we'll really focus in on the specific inflammatory optic neuropathies that we discussed. So first we'll quickly mention that Optic neuritis is probably the most common inflammatory optic neuropathy, and we have discussed that extensively in the past, so we're not going to rehash the full details here. There's also optic neuritis associated with multiple sclerosis, which we will briefly mention mostly in comparison to these two disorders. So, Aaron, let's start with neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorders, if that's okay with you. No, that sounds great to me. So I will give a quick plug to the medical historians out there. I know you guys exist. So neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorders is something that was first described in 1894 by a man named Eugene Devick. He published something called Neuromyelite Optique Agui in a French medical journal. In that same year, one of his colleagues, Dr. Gull, wrote a graduate thesis on the same topic. So it's not entirely sure who first came up with the diagnosis, but these days, most of the credit goes to Devik. In the 1920s, a Turkish neurologist proposed that we name this condition after him, which is why in some literature you'll see that this is called Devik's syndrome, or un maladie du Devik, as it was originally noted in French. In English, in 1903, we first had a description of acute optic neuromyelitis. All of these disorders ultimately were talking about the same fundamental syndrome of an optic neuropathy plus a myelitis syndrome. Over the years, there was some controversy as to whether this was its own independent disease process or just a subset of the wider picture of demyelinating disorders, most notably multiple sclerosis. But things started to change, and we recognized that this was really its own disease process once the aquaporin-4 protein was discovered in 1986. The aquaporin-4 antibody was first identified in 2004 by a group headed by Dr. Lennon, and since then we've had some diagnostic criteria that we'll get into based both on clinical, radiographic, and serologic findings. So that's a quick summary of the history of Devick's syndrome or neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorders, and I want to apologize to all of our French-speaking listeners for mispronouncing any words. Aaron, can you tell us about the epidemiology of Devick's syndrome? I would be more than happy to. I will say, moving forward, we have a lot more specific information regarding MO spectrum disorders than we do MOGAD, which we'll get to in a little bit. But to start with NMO spectrum disorder, the general prevalence is going to be about 
0.7 to 10 cases is kind of what's reported per 100,000 persons. The populations you'll generally see NMO spectrum disorder a little bit more commonly will be individuals with an African ancestry or particularly Afro-Caribbean ancestry. And compared to MS, you'll actually see it a little bit less commonly in Caucasians. I think one of the things that I saw while going through this formally for the talk was that there's somewhat low rate in Australia out of all the places. In the U.S., just for given as the majority of our audience for the podcast, I will say that it is more common in African-Americans, about 13 cases per 100,000, compared to Caucasian and white individuals where it's about four per 100,000 persons. So still overall relatively a rare disease. In terms of age, typically what we think of in terms of the age of onset will be around 40 years old, so kind of in that younger to middle age population. And compared to MOGAD, which we'll talk about a little bit further, there is a bit of a sex preference in this disease, particularly in those who are antibody positive, which we'll specify a little bit moving forward. Will you see more females present with NMO spectrum disease than males, kind of at a ratio of nine to one or so? Great. So what about the underlying pathophysiology of this disease with the knowledge that it's still an evolving process? For NMO spectrum disease, I think, as you kind of mentioned in the history, one of the key things that we learned about was the aquaporin-4 protein. So this ultimately is the protein that is then attacked and labeled by the aquaporin-4 antibody. Aquaporin-4 is a protein highly concentrated on the astrocytic foot processes and is very integral in making and functioning of the blood-brain barrier. The function of it ultimately is a water channel, and it's intimately involved in water homeostasis and consequently will play a very key role functionally in the brain. It is distributed in some key areas that, as we'll see, will come up clinically. So we see it most abundantly in the optic nerve, the spinal cord, central hypothalamic structures, and also the periventricular structures, so along the third and fourth ventricle. And as we'll discuss moving forward, there's a reason we get the syndromes we do with this disease. From a pathophysiology standpoint, then, once we get the aquaporin or a specific antibody, then we start seeing a cascade of immunologic events that lead to damage. So ultimately, the kind of process that we've come to understand is you have B cells in the periphery. They, for some reason, unbeknownst to us why, are producing these aquaporin for specific antibodies, and they will ultimately penetrate the blood-brain barrier to some degree and bind to the aquaporin channel. There will be some T-cell-mediated effects in the process of all of this, mostly in the setting of creating more of an inflammatory milieu. But the main damage that we think is being mediated by two processes. So once these antibodies bind, we expect to see complement-dependent cytotoxicity, so complement-mediated damage, and then more antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity. Those are going to be your two big buckets in which these cells are then damaged, particularly these astrocytes. In the setting of all of this inflammation, there will be some expected damage to neighboring cells as well. So oligodendrocytes and also neurons in the surrounding area. And taken together, we think all of that is leading to both the inflammation and damage to the central nervous system and consequently the dysfunction we see with our patients presenting clinically. That's an excellent overview of the pathophysiology, Aaron. So now let's move on and talk about the clinical features and the diagnostic criteria of Devix syndrome or neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorders. This has been primarily developed by a group headed by Dr. Vingerchuk and was most recently updated in 2015. This combines core clinical characteristics with imaging findings and serologic data. Let's start with the core clinical characteristics, Aaron. 
So I'll start just by listing the most common ones and the ones that clinically make up the diagnostic criteria. So the first, and the impetus for a lot of this talk, optic neuritis. Then the next would be acute myelitis, area postrema syndrome, acute brainstem syndromes, diencephalic syndromes, and then symptomatic more cerebral syndromes. And I'll take a second and we'll go through each of these a little bit more individually and specifically. And I'll do my best to compare and contrast with what we typically see in a disease such as MS. Does that sound like a decent plan? Yes, indeed. So we'll start with optic neuritis. In the setting of optic neuritis, we generally will have a typical picture, right? People should be familiar with the unilateral vision loss that they present with over a days to week type of tempo with associated loss of color sensitivity, so dyschromatopsia, and particularly worsening pain with eye movements. On exam, one of the key findings that you'll see will be a relative afferent pupillary defect, which I know we've discussed in previous podcasts. The classic examination findings would be decreased visual acuity in the affected eye, which is often severe in Devic syndrome, and decreased color vision as measured formally by Ishihara plates. With the assistance of our ophthalmology colleagues, we can perform Humphrey visual fields, which will show generally globally depressed visual function in the affected eye, and optical coherence tomography, which, if given enough time, will invariably show optic nerve thinning or thinning of the retinal nerve fiber layers. In terms of the things that make NMO spectrum disorder more likely in the case of optic neuritis, or posited another way, would be atypical for MS, would be severe impairment of the vision. Typically with MS, we expect mild to moderate impairment, but in NMO spectrum disorder, we can very commonly see severely impaired vision. These patients may not have good recovery. In fact, more times than not, they do have poor visual recovery, despite treatments that we do in the acute setting. The other is bilateral involvement. So typically a bilateral optic neuritis, particularly longitudinally extensive along the optic nerves, even into the chiasm and the tracts can be seen more commonly with NMO spectrum disorder compared to multiple sclerosis, where typically that's going to be more unilateral or more short, discrete optic nerve lesions. In terms of edema that we can see on the optic nerve head, we generally don't see a large degree with NMO spectrum disorder, kind of similar to multiple sclerosis, where you can have some mild edema. But we'll see with our third disease process that this may be a little bit more of a common finding. So, Kevin, would you want to summarize a little bit there? So, essentially, the optic neuritis that presents with Devic's syndrome is going to be a unilateral severe loss of vision. On imaging, you're much more likely to see a longitudinal optic nerve tract involvement or chiasmatic involvement. And this is not going to help you in the moment, but in retrospect, relatively poor visual recovery is a hallmark. Fantastic. So next we have acute myelitis. So for acute myelitis, we'll keep things broad. So we would expect to see long track signs, changes to your bowel and bladder, specifically weakness, usually in the bilateral extremities, be it bilateral lower or upper, depending on the level of the lesion. And you can also see sometimes a Lermitz phenomenon in the setting of more of an acute myelitis. And that is essentially with neck flexion, you can get this shooting neuropathic, almost electric-like pain that goes up the spine or into the extremities. When comparing this to MS, we do see some similarities. So when looking at the initial deficits, similar to optic neuritis, we do expect the myelitis to be more severe and also with a poorer recovery than we would expect with multiple sclerosis. 
in terms of the imaging, and this will invariably come up in some sort of in-service training exam or board exam, there is a relationship with specifically a longitudinally extensive transverse myelitis, so an LETM. And by the definition, a longitudinally extensive transverse myelitis is going to be a myelitis that's involving greater than or equal to three spinal segments, classically. And this is in comparison to MS myelitis, where generally we're seeing maybe a little bit more of an eccentric lesion circumscribed and smaller amount of spinal segments involved, usually one to two. Definitely not to the level where we're hitting three or greater than. Those are the two historic core criteria. The third core criteria is something called an area postrema syndrome. So I think area postrema syndrome is one of the more fascinating syndromes I learned about and can reflect on going through medical school. Essentially, what you have with area postrema syndrome is somebody who's coming in with what seems like refractory nausea, vomiting, or hiccups. And that's classically what we can see with that. On MRI, we will generally see the area postrema lighting up, be it with flare or some mild contrast enhancement. And that's going to be in the dorsal aspect along the medulla up against the fourth ventricle, mirroring, as we've already stated, the distribution of aquaporin 4. So what about acute brainstem syndrome, Aaron? So these can be more of a distributed pathology. We will see mostly cranial nerve findings, as you'd expect from most brainstem syndromes. Things that we can see would include ocular motor dysfunction, so gaze paresis. Some people can experience some hearing loss. Many experience a bit of vertigo. You can also see dysarthria, more bulbar signs. And obviously, any time in the brainstem, you also are on the lookout for more typical long track signs as your critical spinal tract are descending and your sensory dorsal columns and the like are ascending. What about the last two symptomatic core criteria, Aaron? So the last two are a little bit less common, but definitely can be seen. First would be the diencephalic syndromes, which are to me fascinating. So these are going to be more involving the thalamus or the hypothalamus. Clinically, what can be seen are narcolepsy-like symptoms. You can see endocrinopathies, people with temperature dysregulation, which is the only one I've seen personally. I did see somebody with some temperature dysregulation from hypothalamic lesions. You can also see some eating disorders or even something as distributed as SIADH. And lastly, we have symptomatic cerebral syndrome. So this one's probably going to be the most atypical and maybe a bit of a new thought for a lot of people going across NMO. It's more typically seen in children, which may be why as adult neurologists, we maybe aren't as familiar with it. But it's going to be more of broad consideration and really more dependent on wherever the lesion itself is localized to. They can have generalized or focal signs on exam. It could be more distributed and they could present with an encephalopathy or even to the degree where they can have associated seizures with it. This is obviously a little bit less common than those three key ones we already mentioned, so optic neuritis, longitudinally extensive transverse myelitis, and area postrema syndrome, but is one that we wanted people to be aware of, especially as it is implicated in the diagnostic criteria. Just to summarize again, the six core clinical characteristics in the diagnostic criteria for Devic syndrome are optic neuritis, acute myelitis, area postrema syndrome, acute brainstem syndrome, symptomatic narcolepsy or other symptomatic diencephalic syndrome, and symptomatic cerebral syndrome. Let's talk about the criteria for diagnosing Devic syndrome, and we will be referencing the 2015 criteria published by Dr. Vingerchuk and colleagues. At the time you listen to this, there may be a more updated diagnostic criteria. 
Let's first review the diagnostic criteria for Debick syndrome in the case of confirmed positive serum aquaporin-4 antibodies. For the criteria for NMO spectrum disorder when you're seropositive, first and foremost, to even enter the criteria, you do need one or more of the six core clinical characteristics that we've outlined. So you need to have a patient with a syndrome that is consistent initially. Then, in order to be seropositive, you do need a positive serum test for the aquaporin-4 IgG antibody. And then, as part of every wonderful diagnostic criteria, you need to get rid of and have no alternative diagnoses, or at least reasonably rule out alternatives, perhaps. And if we do not have an aquaporin-4 titer available, or if the titer came back negative, what would then be the diagnostic criteria? So then we would be dealing with somebody that we could label as seronegative. So in patients who are seronegative, you need more clinical features. So essentially, you'll need two or more of those six core clinical characteristics, and they must include at least one of those more classic, right? So the optic neuritis, myelitis, and areopostrama syndrome with MRI findings that are consistent. And we should add that the caveats on these diagnostic criteria include the characteristics we mentioned earlier that are more specific for Devic syndrome than other causes of optic neuritis or multiple sclerosis, such as the optic neuritis involving more than half of the optic nerve or involving the chiasm, and the myelitis being longitudinally extensive. So that's a summary of the basic science, pathophysiology, history, and diagnostic criteria for Devic syndrome or neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorders. We're going to pivot now into talking about the more clinically relevant information, including diagnosis and treatment. Aaron, let's say you have a patient who comes into your clinic and you are worried that they might have Devic syndrome. What kinds of testing are you going to want to get in the near future? Generally speaking, part of that will be guided based on the syndrome. But I think for all comers and for the sake of our discussion, things that would be reasonable to go down and do diagnostic testing for would be imaging first and foremost. In terms of imaging that we will utilize most readily is going to be MRI. This can include the brain, the cervical cord, the thoracic cord, and if somebody is coming in with optic neuritis, we'd want a very good look, particularly with an orbital MRI, to get those optic nerves in as best clear view as we can. Once we have the imaging, which can be helpful also as we discussed with the diagnostic criteria, we then want to go down the pathway of figuring out if they are seropositive or not. In order to do that, we will recommend doing antibody testing, and particularly we would want to do that in the serum. The standard, or at least the most sensitive and specific testing that we can do for antibodies for aquaporin-4 is going to be cell-based assays. This is in comparison to things like an ELISA or immunoabsorbent assay. In a setting of using a cell-based assay, generally speaking, we're looking at sensitivities around 80% and specificities around 99%. So very specific testing. I believe most laboratories have switched to using cell-based assays. I know ours in our hospital system certainly has several years ago, but there might still be locations that use the old ELISA or immunosorbent assays. So if it's a new testing location that you're not familiar with, it's always worth just looking at exactly how they did the test. And again, I will reiterate that we are recording this in 2023, so I do expect the sensitivity and specificity of the tests to improve as time goes on. And then outside of the serologic testing, one of the things we'll typically do for workup of inflammatory lesions in the brain would be a lumbar puncture. Typically in NMO spectrum disorder, 
we will see certain differences when compared to MSVESTA stereotype. So in the setting of CSF analysis in NMO spectrum disorder, we will not typically see oligoclonal bands. And this is a good point of contrast to MS, where we almost to a degree expect that. The pleocytosis we see in NMO spectrum disorder is also a little bit interesting as well. One of the key features that they may throw in a test to lead you or nudge you down the route that they want to discuss NMO is if you see an eosinophilic predominance or a neutrophilic predominance with an otherwise inflammatory profile. You can definitely see that with NMO, although maybe not notably common. This is more of a clinical pearl for our listeners than a test question, but do you send aquaporin-4 in the cerebrospinal fluid, Aaron? Not routinely. And why not? It is not nearly as sensitive or specific compared to serologic testing. So more broadly speaking, there are some interesting associations between systemic inflammatory conditions and NMO spectrum disorder. Specifically, you can see seropositivity associated with lupus, Sjogren's, and also thyroiditis. So in a patient where they're coming in with a clinical syndrome that could point you down the road of NMO, it is definitely worth checking the aquaporin for specifically in these conditions because you would have a higher expectation that they may be positive. And I will say this isn't typically a perineoplastic syndrome. Only about 5% of seropositive patients will have an associated malignancy. So that's a good summary of the initial workup. Let's say we've confirmed the diagnosis. What is your typical acute treatment, Aaron? So if somebody wants to come in with an acute flare of NMO spectrum disorder, typically for most all comers, we're going to give them IV glucocorticoids, so usually a high-dose IV solumedrol around the dosage of a gram or so. We do have a pretty low threshold given the amount of morbidity that can be associated with these flares given the poor recovery. We will consider utilizing or escalating to another immunomodulatory agent acutely. Typically what has gone to second would be plasma exchange. It's usually what is favored in severe relapses or in patients who have an incomplete response to the steroids. So now let's talk about the chronic treatment or our disease-modifying therapy. Again, we're recording this in 2023. There are only three FDA-approved medications for the treatment of Devic syndrome as of now, and they all came out relatively recently. They are Celeris or Echolizumab, Aplizna or Inepilizumab, and Inspring or Satralizumab, which we'll discuss in a lot more detail. But I think it may be helpful to go over the more old-school approach before we had these medications. Back before we had these more targeted treatments for NMO spectrum disorder, mostly what people would go to were going to be your more broad-spectrum immunomodulatory agents, things such as avocioprine or mycophenolate. But now that we're in this new age, more guided and targeted towards the pathophysiology of NMO spectrum disorder, we do have the medications that you discussed in our armamentarium. For test-taking purposes, Aaron, what answers should our listeners pick? The FDA-approved ones would be the most reasonable. <laughs> so going through either ecolizumab, inebolizumab, or satralizumab. Ecolizumab is going to be targeting against the complement system. So it is against the C5 complement, and that is one of the terminal complement factors in that cascade, and it's a monoclonal antibody against the C5 complement. It can be a little bit difficult of a medication to be on for dosing reasons, mostly, as it's something that needs to be done every two weeks. 
And one thing that will come up on testing or is a testable aspect of this is the need for meningococcal vaccination prior to initiating treatment with echolizumab. In fact, I literally did a question about that today. So then the next medication we can consider is nebulizumab, which is an anti-CD19 monoclonal antibody. And one way to conceptually think about nebulizumab is it's going to work similar to rituximab and ocrelizumab, so our anti-CD20s. So it's a B-cell marker, but the anti-CD19 is going to be expressed on a larger population of different ages of the B-cells. So you're getting a much wider swath of B-cells depleted compared to utilizing just an anti-CD20, but very similar mechanism action and is ultimately a B-cell depleting medication. This one will have a more tolerable dosing pattern and is something that we just infuse every six months. So sartralizumab is going to be the last FDA approved. It is a monoclonal antibody against interleukin-6 or IL-6 and is really just aimed about getting down that systemic inflammatory response associated with the disease. And similarly, will be dosed about every four weeks or so, so intermediate. So again, on tests in 2023 and later, we do expect that you should be picking one of echolizumab, inebolizumab, or satralizumab. We should mention for clinical practice, though, there are a few others that have been used. I remember at the neuroophthalmology conference, we had a survey of the medications that were used to treat Devic syndrome, and 75% of people picked this next agent, despite not technically being FDA approved. Can you tell us about Rituxan, Aaron? Oh yes, rituximab, one of my favorite medications. So one of the original anti-CD20 monoclonal antibodies, so a B-cell depleting medication, as I said, getting at a similar mechanism as the anabolizumab and the ultimate pathophysiology of the disease, but is very commonly used, was used off-label back in the day when we didn't have these more FDA-approved medications, and is still one that people do reach for. And lastly, we should mention ravalizumab, which is similar to echolizumab. It is also an anti-C5 complement monoclonal antibody. It essentially just has a longer half-life, so it doesn't need to be dosed as frequently, and similarly will also require you to get the meningococcal vaccine prior to initiation of therapy. And hopefully that'll be a nice option for a lot of people who can't tolerate or logistically work with echolizumab. One thing that I think is helpful to discuss is why we go for these quote-unquote big gun medications. You may note once we talk about myelin oligodendrocyte glycoprotein-associated disease that it's actually a question, do we even treat a first case? But for Devic syndrome, we very quickly go for a strong agent. Why is that, Aaron? So... In patients, particularly seropositive patients, we really expect these patients to have relapses. And in the setting of these relapses being usually severe and associated with morbidity if they don't have complete resolution, which we don't expect more times than not, then we really want to do our best to prevent relapses. And that's really the key and the reason why we reach to these strong immunomodulatory agents early on, because we really want to prevent the accumulation of morbidity over time. And I think this is similar to the paradigm shift that has happened in the treatment of multiple sclerosis itself over the last few decades, where we're transitioning from the milder or gentler disease-modifying therapies early on to now the stronger or more efficacious ones. Yeah, and we look forward 
to seeing a lot of different studies in the near future getting at that question specifically. So that is a good summary of neuromyelitis opticus spectrum disorders, or DEVIX syndrome. I think that covers a lot of the things that our listeners are going to be seeing on certification examinations, as well as a few clinical pearls that will hopefully be useful to them in their day-to-day practice. Now let's move on and talk about myelin oligodendrocyte glycoprotein-associated disease. First, for the medical historians out there, I will summarize the history of this. This is certainly a newer condition than neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorders or DEVIX syndrome, and I think one of the ways we can tell that is it is so new that it doesn't even have an eponym attached to it. This was first posited as a pathogenic antibody back in the 1980s. This was when the protein was first identified, and people were assessing the protein in experimental models of autoimmune encephalomyelitis, primarily in animal models. Early testing in humans was somewhat limited, and the early tests were ELISA assays that were not particularly specific, which, although better, is not entirely resolved yet. The protein itself was first reported by a group in 1984 headed by Dr. Leinington, and the same group in 1987 first speculated that this may be associated with disease. In 2007, that is really when the paradigm shift happened in a paper published by a group led by Dr. O'Connor, who demonstrated that the myelin oligodendrocyte glycoprotein antibody was found in some patients with acute disseminated encephalomyelitis, but not in multiple sclerosis, which really suggested that this may be its own disease process and spurred a lot of research over the last decade. In 2015, we've established a scientific consensus that this is likely a pathogenic antibody. And testing for this antibody is a relatively new phenomenon. The first cell-based assay for commercial use, not research use, was only available in 2018. So with that history in mind, we would like to add the disclaimer that, again, we're recording this episode in 2023. If you are listening to this sometime in the future, it may very well be the case that some of this information is out of date. With that disclaimer, Aaron, let's start with the epidemiology. So in terms of epidemiology, and taking into consideration that we are learning a lot about this disease still, which as a fellow is wonderful, it's quite fascinating to be dealing with a disease process on the brink of new things. Um, So we do have some limited large-scale population data. From what I could find, the prevalence is going to be about 1.3 to 2.5 per 100,000 people. And compared to NMO spectrum disorder and MS, we don't really see a difference between sex, between male and female. It seems to be about the same. And in terms of age, though, we do see a similar type of presentation. So generally speaking, we're thinking of younger individuals. We actually commonly will see it in children, maybe not much in my wheelhouse, but definitely something that we get involved with not infrequently and then more towards individuals in their 20s to 30s. Excellent. The pathophysiology of this is also really interesting, Aaron. So I may not be able to be as explicit as I was with NMO spectrum disorder. I can't point to any clear diagrams labeling where different medications will act on the pathway as I could for NMO spectrum disorder. But generally speaking, myelin oligodendrocyte glycoprotein, it's a protein that's found on the outside of the majority of myelin sheaths and will be on the surface of the oligodendrocytes themselves. The role is a little unclear, but is involved in several different aspects. It's involved in the actual structure of myelin. 
It can transduce specific intracellular signaling, and it also may have a bit of a role in modulation of CNS autoimmunity, more broadly speaking. Now, when we deal with the antibodies themselves in a pathologic role, the antibodies seem to be generated in the periphery, similar to NMO spectrum disorder, and these MOG antibodies are known to bind to very specific epitopes on the extracellular MOG domain. And from there, we do think that there's probably going to be both mechanisms involved to damage. So both a complement-mediated aspect and a cell-mediated cytotoxicity. And this will affect not only the myelin itself, but also the oligodendrocytes. So in a way, there may be some overlaps between the ultimate pathophysiology of NMO and MOG, both in terms of complement-mediated injury and cell-mediated cytotoxicity. So now let's talk about the clinical features of this syndrome. And this is a lot less clear-cut than we had with Devix syndrome, simply because our understanding of the disease is still evolving. The core clinical feature that we've been talking about is going to be optic neuritis. So what would you say are the features of an optic neuritis associated with myelin oligodendrocyte glycoprotein, Aaron? So in MOGAD, I'm just going to say that just up front because I will not be able to say the full name properly every time. But in MOGAD with optic neuritis, I'm not going to list out the general symptoms of optic neuritis, but we will generally see severe impairment of the visual acuity up front. The recovery will be better typically than what we see in NMO spectrum disorder. And similarly, when we actually look about it on imaging, we'll see bilateral more so than unilateral. And it can also be similarly longitudinally extensive. And maybe the one thing that I've seen a little bit more commonly in clinic is the involvement of the optic nerve sheath specifically when you see it on MRI imaging. And I alluded to this when we were talking about NMO spectrum disorder, but one thing that can be a little bit more unique to the MOGAD population is when imaging the optic nerve head or doing fundoscopy, you can see moderate to severe edema. And that's actually pretty typical and even can be associated to a degree with hemorrhage. Next, myelin oligodendrocyte glycoprotein-associated disease also will present with a myelitis. So what are the unique features of this, Aaron? So similar to NMO spectrum disorder, MOGAD will definitely be on your list of considerations for a longitudinally extensive transverse myelitis. So a transverse myelitis that's involving greater than or equal to three spinal segments. One of the more interesting aspects of MOGAD is there's a sign called the H sign. So you can actually see hyperintensities more specifically involving the gray matter. And in these cases, you can actually get a myelitis that maybe doesn't fit with your more traditional aspect and is actually more clinically consistent with almost an acute flaccid myelitis. Additionally, you can see conus lesions in MOGAD, which may be a little bit unique compared to the NMO spectrum disorder and MS population. And typically these lesions are not gadolinium enhancing. What about involvement in the brain? This is one area where Devix syndrome and myelin oligodendrocyte glycoprotein-associated disease can differ quite a lot. If you see brain lesions, our index of suspicion for Devix syndrome goes down quite a lot because, as we mentioned previously, aquaporin-4 is really not in the cerebrum all that much, whereas myelin oligodendrocyte glycoprotein still is. So what are some of these features, Aaron? So the first brain involvement that we'll discuss is probably going to be your most common presentation in children, and that's going to be ADEM-like presentation or acute disseminated encephalomyelitis. These people are generally going to come in with some sort of 
almost like a viral URI syndrome is described not uncommonly and a bit of a fever. And then it'll progress to either focal neurologic deficits, but definitely a degree of encephalopathy. In the setting of these events, you'll also have some parenchymal brain lesions. In the setting of MOGAD, you're going to expect bilateral, more ill-defined. They often are described as fluffy, and they can involve the deep gray matter, and rarely they can actually look like a mass lesion and have a bit of a tumefactive aspect to them, but that is more rare. I will say one thing that's a little bit more unique for them in terms of the brainstem, so if we're moving down cortically, those lesions do have a bit of a predilection for the middle cerebral peduncle and the pons. And there is one more unique involvement in the brain, and that's a syndrome called FLAMES. Flare, hyperintense lesions in antimog encephalitis with seizures. The name itself says a lot. It describes essentially what the syndrome is. So on MRI, generally what you will see is a lot of flare hyperintensity, typically in the cortex, with associated leptomeningeal enhancement. These patients will more times than not also be presenting with seizures, as you could posit given the pretty intense cortical involvement. And these seizures can pretty much run the gamut, right? They can be focal or they can be generalized seizures. Typically, if you see a patient that comes into the hospital like this, MOGAD is on the list of things, but it's usually lumped together with a more just encephalitis in general. So these patients are typically also being evaluated for an encephalitis, more broadly speaking, and usually antibody panels will similarly be involved. And interestingly, in this population, there has been a report of dual antibody seropositivity between NMDA and MOGAD. So what about the clinical course that we expect to see? So with MOGAD, we will see either a monophasic or relapsing course. So some of these patients may just have one event, and that's it. They'll just have this one clinical event, and they'll generally be okay moving forward. Versus others who will end up having a relapsing and remitting course. Generally speaking, the relapses will occur upfront in the disease after the initial clinical attack. So typically, it's expected within the first six months or so. And as we'll talk about for treatment, that's an important thing to keep in mind. So that's an excellent discussion of the clinical features of the syndrome. Just to summarize, the core clinical features are an optic neuritis that typically is not nearly as severe as Devic syndrome and has better improvement initially, a transverse myelitis with a predilection for gray matter that is typically non-enhancing and can also present with conus involvement. There are some cases of myelin oligodendrocyte glycoprotein-associated disease involving significant amounts of the cortex. And lastly, typically this will be a monophasic illness, but if it is relapsing, the relapses will occur up front as opposed to something like Devic syndrome where we expect a high number of relapses going forward in the absence of treatment. So with this clinical syndrome in mind, let's talk about the diagnostic criteria. This is a lot less clear-cut than the diagnostic criteria for Devic syndrome proposed by Dr. Vingerchuk and colleagues. What is the general consensus now, Aaron? So there is, in at least 2023, a proposed diagnostic criteria for MOGAD. Similar to NMO spectrum disorder, the first thing, just even to get entrance into the criteria, is you need to have one of those core clinical attack types. And those were the symptoms we outlined. So the optic neuritis, the myelitis, can be an ADEM, monofocal or polyfocal cerebral lesions, or a brainstem cerebellar syndrome, or that flames clinical syndrome. Once you have entered into the criteria and you have one of those core clinical attacks, 
then a lot of it comes down to the positivity on your actual antibody testing, similar to NMO spectrum disorder. So in the setting of a clear positive, and what I mean by that is on a serum cell-based assay, if you have a titer that is greater than 1 to 100, and you have one of those core clinical attacks, you've made it. You have achieved the diagnosis, if you will. It gets a little bit more difficult if you have either a low positive titer or no titer available, or if you're just straight negative in the serum antibody. And in that setting, you can look at the CSF level of the antibody. But generally speaking, in order to end up with a diagnosis of MOGAD, you'll need to have additional seronegativity of the aquaporin 4 IgG, given the overlap in these syndromes. And you'll need at least one supporting clinical or MRI feature. And most of the, in the criteria themselves, these are all listed out ad nauseum for each of these core clinical attacks, and I won't go through all of them in detail. But generally speaking, in order to get to the diagnosis with one of these low positive titers or no titer, then you need more supporting clinical or MRI features. And specifically, you need to rule out aquaporin for seropositivity. Why is the myelin oligodendrocyte glycoprotein antibody titer so much more important, Darren? In the setting of the titer, we generally will expect it to be more in line with disease activity. What I mean by that is in a setting of exacerbations, we do expect it to be higher, more active compared to when people are in remission. And I will say just in general, when we're dealing with those low titers, 1 to 21 to 50, that's going to be pathogenic maybe in about half of the cases compared to a high titer, 1 to 1,000, that's almost always pathogenic. So the titer in MOGAD is helpful both in terms of some of the disease activity and also just how much weight you're going to put in that antibody. Let's talk about the typical workup that you would do for someone that you're suspicious of this disease. Similar to NMO spectrum disorder, we're always going to want to see imaging, and it's going to be the same imaging. It's going to be obviously guided clinically, but we're going to focus on MRI, both of the brain, the orbits, and the cervical thoracic spine. And even in the setting of MOGAS specifically, you can consider adding on the lumbar spine too, if you're not getting enough of the conus on the T-spine, but you should. Outside of that, obviously, we're going to be focusing on the serum MOG antibody titer with a cell-based assay, as we've alluded to already. And in terms of CSF, we will expect to see a pleocytosis a little bit more commonly in MOGAD than we would with MS or NMO spectrum disorder. And specifically, when I'm talking about the pleocytosis, it's going to be a little bit more robust. And what I mean by that is even over 100 cells. And particularly, we would expect that higher pleocytosis in cases of more fulminant involvement. So something like a very impressive longitudinally extensive myelitis or acute ADEM. And similarly to NMO spectrum disorder, we don't necessarily expect to see oligoclonal bands. And in terms of the protein, it can be neither here nor there. It can be normal or it can be slightly elevated, consistent with mild inflammation. But I would say the big things to remember are you can have a higher pleocytosis and oligoclonal bands are rare. As a practical consideration, as part of our workup for both Debick syndrome and myelin oligodendrocyte glycoprotein-associated disease, we've only really talked about sending each specific antibody, but practically you're going to send both antibodies, both aquaporin-4 and myelin oligodendrocyte glycoprotein antibodies, if you're suspicious of either syndrome. Definitely, especially given the clinical overlaps that we've been describing. So now let's move on to treatment. First, we'll talk about the acute setting, the treatment of active layer of disease. 
So the treatment here is going to be a little more hand-wavy than it was for NMO spectrum disorder. In the setting of an acute flare, we generally will be starting with some sort of high-dose IV glucocorticoids like 1 gram of solumetrol for several days. But the difference in this case is, particularly if this is somebody's first flare, so this is somebody with their first clinical syndrome that could be concerning for MOGAD, then we will consider a slow taper of prednisone. The reason for that is what we alluded to in the setting of when people would expect to have a relapse, and that's going to be upfront early in the disease if there was going to be one. So typically what we will do is prescribe a slow taper of oral prednisone, and that can go on for even up to three months after that original insult. You do have some backups in the setting of somebody not improving well or still having a decent amount of morbidity. Then you can consider similar to NMO spectrum disorder, PLEX or plasma exchange. And in this disease state in MOGAD, we do expect to see a little bit of benefit from IVIG as well. So that is another option in the acute phase. Now let's talk about disease-modifying therapies or chronic treatment for myelin oligodendrocyte glycoprotein-associated disease. This is much more of a controversial topic. Very much so. It's an interesting one to go up against clinically, as you'll have a few different options in your armamentarium, but perhaps not strong data pointing you in one direction at this point, and certainly nothing that's been robustly studied in a clinical trial. So this is, as a caveat, just still an active question in the field. But we do have some options from what we can see in retrospective analysis of how people have done. So you always have the old standards that we've been using for years, things like azathioprine or mycophenolate. Then some people will reach to either B-cell depleting agents like rituximab or something like tocilizumab. So once again, more going against the interleukins and more inflammatory states. And one interesting one is as we use IVIG acutely, you can also use IVIG as a maintenance therapy. And that's usually something that's done every month or so, every four weeks. We do have some data on patients who end up being MOG positive who are ultimately being treated with MS medications. And traditionally, those patients don't seem to be particularly protected from relapses. And I will say as a caveat, all of these disease-modifying treatments are going to be in patients who have a relapsing course. In somebody who has had a monophasic course and hasn't had another relapse and we don't expect them to, then we don't necessarily need to go for these agents and immunosuppress them unnecessarily. So some people have gone to the habit of waiting, seeing if there's any concern for relapsing disease and then initiating long-term disease-modifying treatment. And hopefully down the line, we'll have some good clinical trials and more disease-specific treatments So for now, at least, I would expect that maybe the long-term disease-modifying therapy question would perhaps not show up on a certification examination, just given the uncertainty and the lack of a scientific consensus. I would definitely agree with that. I think most of what one would expect to be tested on is going to be more the clinical syndromes and the identification of this disease. That was an excellent discussion on myelid oligodendrocyte glycoprotein-associated disease, Aaron. Lastly, for our listeners, I think we can go over a few clinical features that may be more suggestive of one of these syndromes and another and mention which one it's associated with. So for example, if we have a syndrome that has equal epidemiology between females and males, then more likely than not, they're talking about something in the myelid ligodendrocyte glycoprotein-associated disease family. Mm -hmm. So what about disease course? How do they differ? So... I think if we were going to be comparing and contrasting our big three, so MOGAD, 
NMO spectrum disorder and MS, the odd man out, if you will, would be MOGAD, where you can have a more monophasic course, while relapsing is going to be more characteristic of NMO spectrum disorder for sure, and also the majority of MS patients following that typical relapsing and remitting course. And next, we'll talk a little bit about the optic neuritis component. Probably the most distinctive of these is going to be Devix syndrome or neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorders. In these, you're going to see much more severe optic neuritis with poor visual recovery, and you're more likely to have either longitudinal optic nerve involvement, bilateral optic nerve involvement, or chiasmatic involvement. On fundoscopic examination, a particularly edematous nerve is more suggestive of myelin ligand intracyte glycoprotein-associated disease, though it could also be suggestive of Devix syndrome. A severely swollen optic nerve is not consistent with optic neuritis associated with multiple sclerosis. In terms of differentiating the spinal cord lesions, just to go through it and summarize, we will expect pretty severe longitudinally extensive transverse myelitis, so just to really hammer that point home, greater than or equal to three spinal segments in both MOGAD and NMO spectrum disorder, while MS, we expect it to be more short segment lesions, a little bit more eccentric. Other ways in which we can differentiate MOGAD from NMO spectrum disorder would be in MOGAD, that H sign, so flare hyperintensities without significant enhancement of the gray matter, and additionally, conus involvement is pretty characteristic. Lastly, for our intracranial findings, Neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorders or Devix syndrome usually does not have significant cortical or white matter findings with the exception that you can have area postremis syndrome involvement. Myelin oligodendrocyte glycoprotein-associated disease can have some leukoencephalopathies associated with this, most notably the acute disseminated encephalomyelitis in children. And multiple sclerosis classically has its litany of white matter lesions that are beyond the scope of this talk. There's a very wonderful table that was in the Banwell paper related to the possible diagnostic criteria from MOGAD that really nicely compares and contrasts MOGAD, NMO spectrum disorder, and MS that I think our listeners may find beneficial to look over. Excellent. So that will wrap up our discussion of Devic syndrome and myelin oligodendrocyte glycoprotein-associated disease. As a quick reminder to our listeners, we have several prior episodes discussing optic neuropathies in greater detail, demyelinating disease in greater detail, and optic neuropathies of systemic disease, most notably neurosarcoidosis, in greater detail that will form the core of the differential diagnosis for these patients. It may be helpful to go back and listen to those prior episodes as a reminder of their features. Well, thank you very much for joining me, Aaron, in your new role as our special guest of this episode. I hope you had a good time, and I hope our listeners will learn a lot from your knowledge. Well, thank you for having me back, Kevin. It's always a pleasure getting to chat about, honestly, what are some of my favorite disease problems.